Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. The text from the Word of God for the sermon today is James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And the title for the sermon is simply, If the Lord Wills, or Lord Willing, or God Willing. Sometimes if you read an old letter, they put at the bottom of it DV, meaning Dio Volente, God Willing. That's our title. We'll read the text um, in James chapter 4. And uh, let's start in verse 10. The sermon will come from verses 13 through 17. But verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's pray for the preaching of the word. Heavenly Father, let my teaching fall like rain and my words settle like dew, like gentle rain on the new grass and showers on the tender plants. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, our rock. His word is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, good and upright is he. As your word is preached, may it fall like rain on the tender plants that they may grow in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. James chapter 4, verses 11, through thir- verses 11 through 17, give us two questions. And the questions are not, how come you are so awesome and why can't everyone be just like you? The two questions are not, wow, you look amazing, who cuts your hair? And how can I make all of your dreams come true? Because if we've come to know James by now in James chapter four, James' questions are always questions that slap us in the ear so it just rings and turns red. James asks the kinds of questions that call us out. You have a certain friend who just, oh, If something's uncomfortable, they'll beat around the bush and take literally 18 days to bring it up. James is not that friend. James is not about the slow buildup. James wants to air it out, air it all the way out, and do it right now. James is blunt because James knows what kind of people we are, and we need to be corrected. So James asks these two questions. The first question in verses 11 through 13 is, 
Who are you to judge? There it is. Who are you to judge in verse 12? And the second question that he asks is there in verse 14, what is your life? After all, what is your life? James asks these questions so bluntly because he knows that you are a proud, judgmental bunch who think you know what's happening in everybody else's life. And so he says, who are you to judge? And secondly, James asks these questions because he knows that you are a seemingly successful and put-together people who know what's going to happen in your life today and tomorrow and the next day. And so he asks the first question to a judgmental group of people, who are you to judge? And he asks the second to a successful, my life is going according to my plan sort of people, what is your life? Because he knows, verse 10, he knows, verse 10, that we must humble ourselves. Instead of humility, verses 11 and 12 and 13, instead of humility, verses 11 and 12, when we talk about other people, instead of humbling ourselves about our inability to judge them, when we talk about them, we judge them because we put ourselves in the proud place of judge. And then verses 13 to 17, instead of humility, when we talk about the future, instead of humbling ourselves and making our future totally dependent upon God, we talk about our future like we know what's going to happen in the future. So we talk about other people like we know what's happening in their heart, and we talk about the future like we know what's going to happen next October. Both of those statements and ways of speaking are proud. And so he says we need to be humbled. The first key question in verse 12, who are you to judge? The right response to that question is, oh God, give me the humility not to trust my intuition about everybody else, but just to humbly stop judging other people. And the right response to the second question, what is your life? is to say, oh God, for the humility to stop, to stop trying to be in control of life. Oh God, for the humility to stop trying to steer my plans through on my time frame, but instead to humbly submit to God's timing and God's providence. Who are you to judge? And what is your life? Those are the two questions. Today's sermon will focus in on verses 13 through 17. It's the classic text about God's providence and humanity's dependence thereupon. Or it is the classic text about God's sovereign control and humanity's stubborn contradiction in pride to submit to God's control. We'll treat it today, then, Lord willing, next week and the week after, we'll focus on, the, on Jesus and the events of his life for Palm Sunday and Easter, and then we'll come back and maybe treat it one more time uh, after the Resurrection Sunday. 
But this morning, I want to sort of ask and answer four uh, big questions out of this text. And the first question is, is planning always wrong? Or in the analogy he gives, is making a profit in business always wrong? Or is planning only sometimes wrong? And is making a profit in business sometimes right and sometimes wrong? How, how does this all work? That's the first question. Is planning in business and making a profit wrong in and of itself? We'll answer that question in the negative. The plan in verse 13, you see it come now. You who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make profit. The plan in verse 13, if you spin it out, <clears throat> comes down to five things. These are things that you have to do to make any sort of business venture work. The start date, the location, the timeline or the duration, the exact uh, business that you'll transact, and the goals for your business. The goal is to make a profit. The exact business is to trade there. The duration is to spend a year there. The location, it's all laid out there. You can't open a lemonade stand without at least considering these five questions. Where are you going to put the stand and how long are you going to operate it and what are you going to sell? It's not immoral to lay out this plan. It's actually logically and humanly and economically necessary to lay out this plan. In fact, our deacons and our elders and our board officers regularly discuss these kinds of things. Let us hope they're not sinning every time they do so. It's not always wrong to plan. Planning's not wrong. In fact, planning is encouraged in Scripture. Working hard with integrity and making a profit off your labors is not condemned in Scripture. Greed is, but a sort of a free market where those who work harder make more money is not condemned in Scripture. Making a profit's not wrong. It's encouraged. Uh, as long as there's generosity and a, and, a, and a submission to God with that money. Planning is not wrong as long as there's submission to God and awareness of his sovereignty. Plenty of texts in the Old and New Testament that say, one, working with integrity and making a profit is good and honorable, and two, planning ahead is good and honorable. Proverbs 6, go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. We could turn to the narrative example of Joseph, who planned ahead and, and brought a great profit to Egypt for gathering for those seven years and saving many lives in the process. I had the great, great fun of being in the youth ministry three or four weeks ago on a Wednesday night to do a question and answer. And you know, one of the questions that they asked me was, is it wrong to invest in the stock market? Or is it gambling to invest in the stock market? I thought that was a good question. My answer to the question was no. According to biblical understanding of economy, like you could, this is in Exodus, this is in Deuteronomy, this is all over the book of Proverbs, uh, to try to get rich quick without working is evil and foolish and leads to destruction. Gambling is evil and foolish and leads to destruction. Because the biblical ethic is to try to get rich quick without working hard always leads to folly. But the biblical economic ethic is that hard work over time 
honestly done with integrity leads to success, flourishing, wealth, all the rest of it. So if, if investing in the stock market is investing in companies that work hard over time with proper stewardship and integrity, then that's a good investment. It's not gambling. I've been increasingly, in the last couple of years, I've increasingly been asked the question, well, is capitalism evil? Is making a profit evil? Is socialism or communism the, what the Bible encourages? My answer to that question is no, capitalism and making money is not evil. And no, the Bible does not encourage a sort of a, a socialist or a communist sort of understanding of the economy. On a, on a historical level, not even from Scripture, but just from looking at the history of the world for the last, what, 200 years that we can study carefully, one cannot rationally conclude that socialism or communism leads to human flourishing and prosperity. It simply does not. On a biblical level, from Deuteronomy, from Exodus, from Romans, from the epistles, it seems clear, or it is clear, that the government's role is not to control everything about the economy, but the government's role clearly is this. Exodus repeats this. Proverbs repeats this. The government's role is this, to promote fair measurement. So a dollar is always a dollar, and a pound is always a pound, and an hour is always an hour. Government should establish justice. That is, there's, there's not one standard for the poor and a different standard for the rich, or one standard for the native Israelite and another standard for the foreigner. Government must refuse to do that. In other words, justice is exactly the same all across the board. Justice would never favor either the rich or the poor or the native-born, or the immigrant. Justice is justice. Biblically, it does seem to me that justice doesn't need a descriptor in front of it. In other words, biblically, it's not social justice or economic justice or whatever. It's justice, justice, which insists that it's the same measure and the same standard for everyone. So don't twist this into some sort of anti-planning or anti-making uh, uh, a business plan or something like that. The issue is not whether or not to plan for the future or to make a profit. The issue is, where is God in your making and spending of that profit? And where is God in your making and execution of that plan? In other words, make that plan according to principles of God's word and in humble submission to God and make that profit according to God's generosity and then utilize that money according to the principles that our generous God has laid out for us in his word. So if we can ask the first question, is planning and business and making a profit always wrong? The answer is no. Question number two, so what is it that can make planning wrong? Or what is it that can make it wrong to make this plan? Why are these people, in particular in verse 13, why are they rebuked for making a plan? Well, because the issue is 
They simply say, we will do this and we will do that. And they, they're, they're, or if you, your speech about yourself and what you're going to do takes up all the oxygen in the room and there is none left for God. You leave God out. You speak as if you are God and you're not. In John Blanchard's commentary, he says, James was not condemning their business, but their boasting. James was not condemning their industry, but their independence. I think that's exactly right. What makes the planning wrong is not that the plan was made, but that the plan was made proudly. What makes uh, making a profit wrong is not that a profit was made, but that the profit was then spent prayerlessly. What makes the planning wrong is that the planning was made presumptuously. The plan was just filled to the brim with human hubris. Your speech about what you're going to do and where you're going to go is just, the words are just pulled out of a stockpile of independence rather than humble dependence on God. What is the specific critique? Their plan is in verse 13. This is the specific critique is in verse 14. Yet... You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's the specific critique. Is that one, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You are so uncertain. That's the first thing. You're uncertain about what tomorrow's going to bring. After all, you are uncertain about what tomorrow is going to bring. We don't know what news is going to break tomorrow or the next day. We don't know what the other people in our lives are going to do tomorrow. In fact, we don't even know about what unintended consequences will come from what we ourselves do today. We ourselves make choices today, but we don't know what unintended consequences will follow from the choices we ourselves make. And if we can't predict what will be the outcome of our own choices, how could I possibly predict what will be the outcome of his and hers and his? That's the first thing you're uncertain about tomorrow. What's the second thing? Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So it's two, twofold. Uncertain about tomorrow, certain that your life is shorter than you think it's going to be. <laughs> be certain that your life is shorter than you think it's going to be. You're a mist. And it, your life's not going to last as long as you think it is. So in the light of these two considerations, that you are not in control of the future and that you're not in control of the duration of your life, you should always plan under the banner of God is in control and God's the one who disposes of these plans. Proverbs 27, verse 1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. We don't know if we'll be alive tomorrow. So we certainly can't boast about it. If that's what makes planning wrong, maybe the third question we could ask of our four questions is, what is it that can make planning proper? Or how do we have a proper perspective on God's providence in our planning? How do we have a proper perspective on God's providence in our planning? I think we can get an answer here as we move through the text from verse 15. Verse 14, what is your life? You're a mist. Verse 15, instead, instead of saying, verse 13, we will do this and we will do that, instead, you ought to say, 
if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We all know the biblical phrase, if the Lord wills. You know, the right way to interpret that for my grammar geeks, the protasis and the apotasis, the right way to put those clauses together is, if the Lord wills, we will live. And if the Lord wills, we will do this and we will do that. So we tend to say, Lord willing, I'll meet you next Thursday. But what the Bible actually means is, Lord willing, I'll be alive next Thursday. <laughs> and then, Lord willing, I will actually make it to the place where I'm saying I'm going to meet you next Thursday. If the Lord wills. We put everything under the providence of God, including, including our own drawing in of breath into our lungs. And then our plans of what they will be. Your personal response to God's sovereignty should be that instead of making a plan without referencing God, you should plan under the providence of God. There's a sweet submission to God's sovereignty. That's what makes planning proper. There's a frank rejection of the ridiculous notion that I am in control. That's what makes planning proper. It's not that I don't plan. It's that my plans reject the fact that I'm ultimately in control. There's a sweet, humble submission to God's providence. You know how it says that you're a mist, life appears for a little while and then it vanishes. We may talk about that uh, if we get back to this text in a couple of weeks. But you know, there, there are many unbelievers who, to, to my way of seeing it, beautifully portray how uncertain and how short life is. I think of films that bring us to tears or novels or just a pop song that can reduce me to tears while I'm on my jog about the ache of losing someone too soon. Believers and unbelievers know or can know that life is short and uncertain. But what makes believers in Jesus different is that that knowledge leads us to sweetly submit to God's sovereign control. And it leads us to prayerfully trust God's providence. The root of the issue here is that the person who speaks in verse 13 speaks in a worldly way. Or to say the exact same thing, the root of the issue is the person that speaks in verse 13 speaks in a proud way. Because to be proud is to be worldly, is to say, I am the captain of the ship. The solution is humility. The solution is uh, uh, this God-centered humility. That's the core of this whole chapter. That's why he's saying in verses 11 and 12, your critical speech about others is arrogant because you place yourself as their judge, but God is their judge. And that's what he's saying in verses 13 to 17. Your independent speech about what you are and aren't going to do tomorrow is arrogant because you place yourself as in control of your future, but God is in control of your future. So the way to plan properly is to say something like verse 15, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. Now, verse 15 is not a, a hocus-pocus word. It's not that if you say this, you're okay, and if you don't say it, you're not. That's, that's not how we read the Bible. That's not how the Bible enjoins us to, to think about our humanity. 
It's not a formula that must be spoken every time. It's interesting, if you were going through Acts in ABF right now, one thing that you could do is there are three or four or five times in Acts where Paul or one of the apostles literally says, if the Lord wills, we're going to go to that next city. But then there are seven or eight or nine times in Acts where Paul or another one of the apostles just says, well, we're going to go to that city. Well, what is it? Were they like godly when they did the one, but then they forgot to have their quiet time and they did something bad the second? No, it's, it's showing us that this isn't like some magic formula that we have to say, but it's a reality of posture. It's a reality of attitude. It's radiating from the heart. And so certainly sometimes it's going to come out of the lips, but even when it doesn't come out of the lips, it still radiates out of the heart. That's how to make planning proper. When the sovereignty of God is honored. You know, the way that Jesus taught was through stories. Dan and Joan Schneider, as they train missionaries to Africa, they have a, they have a whole class on orality, how to teach through stories. It works particularly with those who don't have the Bible written in their own language or couldn't read it. The story that Jesus tells in Luke 12, 16 to 20. When I read it, maybe you'll recognize it because it's a, it's a, great, it's a great story. Luke 12, verse 16. And Jesus told them this parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I will build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. It's as if God is saying, you stack up all that gold, you stack up that 401k, you stack up all those plans, and they don't amount to anything when your soul is required of you. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And these things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So is the one who makes all of his plans self-referentially toward himself and about what he's going to do and is not humbly submitting his plans to God. The point is, never leave God out. Never leave God out. Worldly people have a closed system where I can do this and I can't do that and I can do this and I can't do that, but I can run it. Believers have this open system where God invades the system and permeates the system all the time. So we never leave God out of the equation. God is the equation. God's the paper the equation's written on. God's the pen that writes it. He's in everything. We have a vibrant, instinctive, intense awareness of God's providence. I love hanging out with someone who has a vibrant awareness of God's providence. I love taking a walk with someone who just sees a woodpecker and says, isn't that great? 
that God let us see that woodpecker today. I just love that. It's, it's the, the random bird fairies did not allow us to see that woodpecker. It was God. And so point it out and thank him. Just bring God with you everywhere you go. Well, if that's how to make planning proper, maybe the fourth and last question that we can ask is this, which should always be asked in a sermon. Well, what should I do? Well, what should I do? Based on this, what should I do? I think verses 16 and 17 will answer this question. But the answer to the question, what should I do, is this. Repent of pride. Trust in God humbly and obey. Repent of pride, trust in God humbly and obey. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. What should I do? Repent of pride, trust in God humbly and obey. The proper perspective is always humility, never arrogance. The proper perspective doesn't presume that I'm in control, but rejoices that God is in control. The proper perspective, verse 10, is active and aggressive to humble myself, to humble myself. And the proper perspective is active and aggressive, verse 10, to humble myself. And the proper perspective is active and aggressive, verse 17, to do the next obedient thing. Simply to do the next obedient thing. Don't you read verse 17 as saying, well, you, maybe all of your plans won't come to fruition, but you can do the next obedient thing in the next 15 minutes, and then the next 15 minutes after that, and the next 15, like just keep doing the next obedient thing. Let the blazing sun of God's perfect sovereignty dissolve the fog of your independent plans. Let the sharp, serrated edge of God's omniscient sovereignty slice the pride and the independence out of your heart, out of your calendar, out of your life. What should I do? I should say, if the Lord wills. What should I do? I should say the words of Psalm 31, verse 14. Psalm 31, verse 14. But I trust in you, O Lord. You are my God. My times are in your hands. How often, how often I read that verse when I go to pray with somebody when they're, they're not sure the cancer treatment's gonna work. We say, O Lord, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Proverbs 19, verse 21. Many are the plans in a man's mind, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Man plans, but God provides. And if we read verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Let me, let me uh, riddle a little bit out of this verse before we're done. Verse 17 is very interesting. It's a verse that gets quoted without its context all the time, but to place it in its context, I think will we'll pinch you in a, in a good way. Verse 17, it says, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like verses 13, 14, 15, and 16 says, uh, God is in control, you aren't. God's in control of your life, you aren't. And it's almost as if after we hear that, we're like, Duh. I know God's in control and I'm not. I know that I don't control the day of my own death. But James is saying, 
James is brushing your, duh, I already know that aside. And James is saying, yeah, you think this is very basic, but the way you live and the way you talk and the way you envision your future proves that you don't even operate on the most basic theistic level. You act like an atheist. You'd never self-identify as an atheist on the census because you don't want the lightning bolt to strike you. Of course you put, I'm a Christian. But the way you spend your money and the way you talk about what you're going to do in the future is frankly atheistic. James says, you know these truths about God, but they don't, they don't show up. They don't show up in the way you think, in the way you talk, in the way you live. Charles Spurgeon used an illustration about this that I thought was quite bold. Um, I actually probably wouldn't, I wouldn't come up with this illustration on my own, but with Spurgeon as my lead blocker, I'll go ahead and use it. He's, he takes verse 17 as sort of a, we, we kind of make plans and we think that our obedience to God will be shown when the government finally comes and puts a gun up against our head and says, do you deny Jesus? And we'll say, no, I don't deny Jesus. And we'll go out and flame it. That's our obedience. But we don't realize that obedience is our, what our shoulders and our tone of voice do when the person we live with asks us to clean something up. Obedience is in the little things. It's in the little things. And Spurgeon's illustration was of a woman in the church. I don't think she was actually there in the church. It's hypothetical. He wasn't calling her out by name. And she has little children at home. And she neglects her children to evangelize her neighborhood and then volunteer in the church. And Spurgeon says, such conduct is sin. The first thing God's calling you to do is to mind your children and attend your duties at home. And after you have done that, you may plan to do something for God in other places. But if present duties are neglected, you do not make up for that omission by some future dramatic endeavor. I like that. If present duties are neglected, you don't make up for that omission by some future dramatic endeavor. And then Spurgeon moves off of the woman watching her kids and he nails a couple of men in the congregation and he says this, young man, you do not honor your parents, but you say you are going to be a minister? Oh, a pretty fine minister you shall make. And then he says this, young man, you work at the bank and your work at the bank is dilatory and ne neglectful, and your boss is always happy to see the back of you. And yet you tell me you shall be a missionary? Oh, a fine missionary you shall make. You see, you see how he's applying verse 17? Oh, yeah. We're, we're, we're going to do some dramatic, exciting, obedient thing for God. And yet the most obvious, the most basic, the most close at hand thing is too boring to draw forth our attention. And it's as if God says, the slump of your shoulders 
to serve the people that you live with to clean up the mess in the kitchen and the bad attitude with which you do that. You, you, you don't pass that up and say you're going to do something great when you volunteer at the church. Obedience is important, but obedience can be so boring in the humdrum and the mundane. But this is the obedience that God's after. That's a good word. So God does expect us to make plans. And as, as we look at this whole paragraph, it's almost like I can, I can hear our sort of American pragmatic response. It's like, well, okay, if, if, all the, if the plan in verse 13 is like, you have to make a decision, like we're gonna go to Milwaukee and make this amount of money and do this. If it's not wrong to plan that way, then we could just submit it to God, but we still are gonna go to Milwaukee and make this amount of money. In other words, we can make the exact same plan, but in one way it would be wrong and in another way it'd be right. We can make one plan to go to Milwaukee, but if we leave God out of it, it's wrong. Another plan to go to Milwaukee and make this amount of money and that makes it right. Well, what's the difference? The difference is, don't you see this? Just take a deep breath, feel your heart beat, blink your eyes and realize, what if what Jesus is saying in this text, what if one of the things Jesus is saying in this text is this? You were not created merely to go to Milwaukee and make money. You were created to know God and to know that God knows you. Why on earth would you live like the horizon of your life was to accomplish everything that everyone can accomplish without knowing God? God made you to be his daughter, to be his son. So that when you walk down the street and you see that woodpecker on that tree, you say, God, thanks for showing me that. God is with you where you go. You were made to know that God loves you. And the love of God is revealed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the one who would die on the cross in our place. The right thing to do is to live in the love of God and in the awareness of God's presence every day. So what should I do? One, humble myself before God. Two, remember that life is short. Remember that life is short and I don't hold the future in my own hands. Number three, simply do the next boring right thing. Quit dreaming about, well, I'm gonna really prove it here or there. Simply do the next boring right thing. God loves faithfulness in the little things. You know, uh, I don't know if it was Chesterton or somebody said, of course God loves the little things. He made, think about how many little things God made and how many big things God made. God made a whole bunch more of the little things because he loves them. God loves the little things, the faithful little steps here and there. Trust God, commune with God, live with him moment by moment. This is the right way to live this short life that's merely a vapor and then it's gone. 
to live at Coram Deo in the presence of God. Let's pray. Church, I'd ask you to bow for prayer and um, I wanna lead you in a time of prayer and give you an opportunity to pray about the message. The word has been preached. The seed has been sown. And now in prayer, let the word be applied. Let the seed take root. And so I'd ask you in prayer to simply from the heart say, God, uh, I need to repent. You've called me to humble myself. And God, I recognize and admit that I have been proud. God, you've called me to be dependent upon you. But God, I recognize and confess that I have been independent, almost godless in some of my ways of thinking. Repent. Confess your sin and know that he is faithful and just to forgive your sin through Jesus Christ. Take a moment to repent. And then if I could lead you in prayer about your life, <laughs> what is your life? It's a vapor. It's gone before you know it. This we know, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so church, I'd invite you to pray for a moment about how your life is being invested. Maybe you simply say, Jesus, I want what I do to matter for you. Stay-at-home mom, retired senior citizen, what you do each day, it matters to God. Say, God, show me how to do the little things and show me if there is something big. But in every moment of every day, I want what I do to be because I know you. So lead me, God, in the next step of obedience. Heavenly Father, hear your children as they pray and answer their prayers by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, alive and at work in us by your Holy Spirit. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.